0: Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, your fast-paced videocast that helps you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom, and it features entrepreneurs like Scott Miller, who's going to be our special guest today, that have great stories to tell and things that they can tell you about how you can become not only a better entrepreneur, but a better person. Welcome, Scott. Welcome to the show.
1: Wayne, thanks so much. It's a real honor to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to really just having a chat with you about business and life.
0: Yeah, and you know, Scott's got a lot of experience in both in business and in life. So, we're going to explore a little bit of that today. Just a little bit of background on him. He is an operator in the beverage world. He has started up companies, he has worked in the warehouses of companies, which we'll talk about in a second. And he's actually created and sold companies to very big companies in the beverage business. And he's into a new venture called Yesly, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is very exciting. But also, importantly, Scott has written a book that I think you know everyone should get their hands on when it comes out in September, which is right around the corner. And it's called The Summit Mindset. So uh, I'm very excited about that. And a uh, little bit of background on you, Scott. One of the things I read in the book was that you started your business as a warehouse employee working at pepsi is that right yeah
1: that's right i actually started on the warehouse floor at pepsi loading trucks i had a family member who worked at pepsi and i started there really from the ground up and i think it serves me so well today because when i speak to folks both young in the middle and older i can talk about starting on the warehouse floor learning the business from the ground up and really understanding the nuts and bolts of the beverage business And you know a lot of folks think it's broadway and really sexy, but it's a very gritty business and learning it from the ground up is really meaningful.
0: What uh, What are some of the lessons that you learned at that stage and you bring with you today?
1: Yeah, to I think really, the greatest lesson at that stage, now that I reflect on it, as I've run companies for years, is every person in the organization counts. The person loading the trucks, the person stacking the pallets and the driver who's driving the truck to the folks in the boardroom, to the receptionist at the front door, it's a very humbling experience to really connect with people because it's every part of the organization matters. And I think that's something as you galvanize a team, you have to make sure that everybody feels included in the pursuit of whatever that journey may be.
0: Outstanding. You know, the the book really hit me hard uh, when I read the story about your dad. He uh, passed away from cancer and he was a hardworking guy. Can you give us a little bit of that story? Because I think it's... It's important for people to read this book just to to get the feeling for where you came from and where he came from as well. Yeah, I
1: and mean, I really appreciate that. I came from very humble beginnings, uh, quite frankly, from you know poverty. My dad was a roofer in the Northeast, which means it snows all winter, right? So a lot of folks are out of work, and often that was the case. But my dad died at a very young age, and on his deathbed, he turned to me. I was in the room alone with him, and he said, I'm sorry. And I said, sorry for what? I certainly felt the financial struggle in the home. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't try harder. And that was just an amazing intersection in my life. It really seared right through me. And I said, wow, this weakness of yours is going to become my strength. And my dad died in like, you know, just 60 days of uh, lung cancer. He was a a cigarette smoker, like a lot of people from that generation. But that moment, we all have intersections in our lives. And that moment was a real intersection for me. Because I knew as he sat there on his deathbed, he was sorry that he left it on the table and didn't try harder. Um, and I think that's something that every human being, you know, we reflect on our life. And there's, every day is a new day to put the ball back in bounds and do more. Um, so that was uh, really the first point in my life as a young man, my early 20s, mm-hmm. that really pivoted my life on my, on my life journey.
0: I mean, how could a man be sorry for working probably seven days a week, two jobs or three jobs when the roofing business yeah. was at a dormant you know, situation yeah. in the winter? How could a man be sorry about that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, you're right. He always worked odd jobs. He drove an oil truck, did what he had to do, kept food on the table. But I guess it's that moment when you kind of sit and you know the end is near, right, that you kind of look at your life. And it's always inspired me. you will talk about in a bit to have that summit mindset that the climate in life is always changing. Things are tough for all of us. Adversity hits us all. It's not only how we deal with it, but how we move through it and move forward. So I think when we lean into adversities, when we get our greatest learnings for my life, the greatest learnings have been in adversity,
0: not in the winner circle. We all have what some people would call failures, but they're really the better way to spin it maybe is that it's a positive learning experience and that we learn from all of these experiences. For sure. For sure. So how did you get from where you were to where you are and create the summit mindset, which I think is, is a great metaphor. Tell us about, first of all, what is the summit mindset?
1: Wayne, the summit mindset is when you think of a summit or a mountain, you know, I'm a big runner. I love to run the mountains and the climates always changing. it's a sunny day the weather moves in on you, it's either raining or hailing or snowing on you. And you got to dig in or find shelter. And I really believe that's life. Adversity of life is always changing. Life is not a straight line. And I think folks often make the mistake thinking, wow, why did this happen to me? Why is life this way? Because that's just living. And if you have a summit mindset and you build strong fundamentals and a foundation, you work through those adversities of life, just like you do on the mountain. So Really, the Summit Mindset, a mom can read the Summit Mindset, a CEO can read the Summit Mindset. And the goal is it's a, really, it's a hybrid book that everybody can get something out of it for their own lives.
0: So it's not just about building a business with a Summit Mindset or the business having a Summit Mindset. It's about you personally having that mindset. It
1: really is. It's a prescriptive book. At the end of every chapter, it gives you an exercise to pause and think about. And it really is personal. It really is. It should touch you. It's you versus you. And I think that's such a meaningful word in life. It's all you versus you, right? For all of us. So if we can learn on that journey and have a no finish line mentality, we work through the adversity life. We keep getting better. And that's what inspired me to write the book. I think uh, today I'm 60 years old and said, look, I want to say a few things. I want to talk to the world a little bit. I think I can do that through my own life experience, through my own adversity. And um, hopefully... It's a book that everyone can read.
0: It's funny, you know, I, I just finished writing a book myself. It got published earlier this year, and uh, I'm 65. <laughs> so I guess when we hit, the, hit our 60s, we start reflecting back For sure. on life before us. You know, so the, the summit metaphor, just the visualization of that is really powerful to me. The other metaphor that you introduce in the book is that every company, every person, has to have a North Star, which again, when you start looking at mountains and you're looking up at the heavens and whether it's faith-based or spirituality-based or whatever, it's a powerful, powerful image. What does it mean for a company to identify its North Star?
1: Yeah, I love all your questions, Wayne. I think I've gone in and run a lot of companies and I often find out, tell me a little bit about your company. Who are you guys? And you get fragmented answers. And I think every company needs a North Star. They need something to be in pursuit after. When I took over essential water, it was to be the number one premium water in North America. That's a North Star we set. Now we wake up every day. It's kind of like, how's the weather? Let's go after that North Star. And I think individuals need a North Star. What are they in pursuit of? Whether it's gardening in the backyard, you know, walking their first mile. We're all better humans and organizations are better organizations when we're in pursuit of a North Star.
0: And so the North Star for Yesley is what?
1: The North Star for Yesley is to be the number one enhanced still water beverage in North America. Uh, we started that North Star when we had two employees. Today, in seven months, we have 20 employees. We're really excited about Yesley. Yesley is an enhanced still water beverage with vitamin B12, B6, vitamin C and zero calories. It's a true white space in the market. And we think it's a really fabulous opportunity.
0: There's a lot of competitors out there. I, I, I drink a few that are carbonated. That's right. So, why do you think the still water will be more uh, successful or a, as successful or very successful?
1: Yeah, I think that carbonated space is very crowded. You know, there's a lot of players in that space. But think about how most people drink water they drink it out of a PET bottle, they drink it even from their tap, and they drink it still. So, I think still to create a still product in packaging of aluminum. It's sustainable. We can get all channels of trade. You can have it by your pool. You can have it on a college campus. And we're giving it with fortification, something that's better for you. So I think it's a real opportunity. We're leading the category in that way. I'm sure many will follow us, but being a first mover in beverages is really important.
0: I think so too. I think it's its going to establish market share and you're going to be able to launch it and be very, very successful. What are your plans for Yesley? What is the the summit that you're trying to achieve
1: yeah it's a great question i look we want to build a great company we want to be able to build a company that can employ great people we want to build a culture that we call a we culture not a me culture that everybody's involved everybody has a voice and everybody has a valuable voice to make a difference so um love to give young people opportunity people in the middle age opportunity and older people the opportunity to grow with Yesley and really build a brand that we can be proud of and give back to our community serve our community and create a brand that's an active lifestyle brand. Yes is about, you know, say yes to what's next. Your yes is different than my yes, but it's a positive metaphor about moving forward and living life in motion.
0: Just the name itself, the branding, I think is really powerful. It, it's yes, you know, it's something that's very positive. So it, it makes you lean in that direction.
1: So. Yeah, it leaves nobody out, right? The goal is to leave nobody out.
0: So in the book, you talk about, Pillars. And you know, all of us have read, you know, various business books, self-help books, whatever. What are an organization's strategic pillars and what are the organization's values?
1: What I say running even Essentia, when I went to Essentia, I said our mission statement, our culture will never be a plaque on the wall. You know, that's a hollow tree that falls down in the forest. We have to live our culture every day. We have to live our pillars. You know, my personal pillars are my faith, my family, others, and business. And I toggle through them every day. Some things I'm really good at, some things I stink at, but I know how to adjust. In a business at Essentia, it was people first. At Yesley, it's we're a we culture. We're inviting everybody in, right? Now, when we interview folks, hey, are they part of a we culture? Does Wayne, does Wayne fit into our we culture? or is he an eye guy? We can identify the kind of culture we want to develop and galvanize people around our pillars. And pillars to me personally, and in a business is kind of like, how's the weather? Hey, how are we doing on our pillars, right? How am I personally doing on my pillars? One of the things I always speak about in business Wayne is I don't want to talk about what we're good at. What do we stink at? Because humans don't like to talk about what they stink at, neither do organizations, right? But when you identify what you stink at, it's an inside out job. You make adjustments, you recalibrate, you close the gap on what you stink at and you get better. We talk at Yesly about our pillars all the time. How are we doing as a we culture? Are we listening to each other? You Mm -hmm. know, are we humble and hungry competitors? So I think these things are really important, whether you're an organization of five people or 100,000 people.
0: You know, the the biggest challenge that I have as a business owner entrepreneur is trying to figure out when somebody's in it for themselves versus in it for the organization? What are the tools or the, or the guidance that you can give to the listeners to help people identify an I or me person versus a we person?
1: It's really about your hiring process. It's about when you set up your pillars and you set the culture up of your business, we want a we culture. We want to all add value. I want to help you get your job done. You want to help me get my job done. Business is about solving problems, and so is life. If you have teammates that everybody solves problems together, they don't say, no, it's the finance department's problem. No, it's marketing's problem. When you create a we culture, we galvanize around the problems as a team, and we become relentless competitors because we're solving things together. So in that interview process, I'm asking myself often, hey, does John or Mary or Wayne, are they a we culture person or are they a me culture? And again, the important part of the pillars, right, it kind of creates guardrails around our business.
0: How do you figure that out, though? What is, what is as part of the hiring process, what, what do you do to determine, make that determination, I guess?
1: Yeah, great question. Love all your questions. You know, I always ask a question. I've interviewed thousands of people through my life, probably like you, and I say, hey, tell me a little bit about Wayne. And what most folks say is, I'm a hard worker, I'm trustworthy, and I love my family. Will you close your eyes like everyone can say that? (laughs) In the interview process, we want to say, tell me what kind of teammate you are. Give me an example of what kind of teammate you are. How do you contribute? How do you add value differently? And what's your point of difference today? So I think it's asking very pointed questions that starts to show you that people can articulate what kind of teammate they are. Give me an example. I like to talk about examples because when you do those things as a habit and a behavior, you can provide examples of being a good teammate. And when you don't do them, you typically can't provide them.
0: Thank you. That's, a, that's a, great, uh, a great way to visualize it for me and for others who are listening to this video cast today. I read a piece of the book. I haven't had a chance to finish the whole thing, but I, got, I did get through about half of it. And there was a section on Uh, learning, developing a culture of learning. Tell us more about that. How do you do that? What does that entail?
1: Yeah, I think it's so important. I think we're all leaders. And I think, you know, whether you're running one person or just yourself, you have to have a mindset that we're all leaders and leaders should be learners. When I run an organization, I'm a big reader, I read every week, I'll just take clip notes, I'll highlight a couple things, throw them out on text, throw them out on email, and I'm always providing information, even if it's on text or email, about something I read, whether it's Harvard Review, whether it's a book I'm reading. And I'm creating a behavior in your organization that is looking that I'm a learner. Starting with me, I'm a learner. And what happens is people start to provide things back the same way, provide things they're reading or seeing. I'll send out books to the organization through my time. Now, I know, Wayne, not everybody reads that book. Some people yeah. shell them but it's okay because I'm creating an environment that we're all learners. And as a leader, it's about being vulnerable. I want to learn from everybody. You know, there's always someone in the room that knows something we do. Maybe somebody plays a guitar. I don't play a guitar. What can I learn? How curious can I be about other people? When we create that environment, again, we're no longer in the 1950 management where we're pounding the desk. We're learning together. We're getting better together. And to me, that creates a really great culture.
0: Well, I think the one thing that you really emphasized just a few seconds ago, and really, I want to re-emphasize again, and it's something that I I try to do, but I don't do it enough. I think you're you're probably a, a much better example of that, and that is taking the things that you learn and sharing it with others. Yes, it's a, it's a it's a culture of learning, but it's a culture of sharing what you learn, and maybe it's not the best stuff in the world that you're sharing, or maybe it is some really cool stuff that you are sharing, but you're sharing. And, yeah. then they, and this, the, the culture of learning also includes a culture of sharing and then being receptive to what others are learning as well. How do you get other people to to share what they're learning with you and with others on the executive team?
1: I think it does become almost like a virus when you start doing what I'll do is I'll just take a paragraph and I'll highlight four sentences and I'll take a picture of it and I'll send it out because I know people really don't have a lot of time. They're busy, but they'll all read a few sentences and it becomes almost like a viral. It becomes virus that people want to do it back. They Mm -hmm. want to share it, want to talk about it. And on teams calls and things like this, we'll talk about things on how we get better, what we read, what we saw. I'll recommend a book or I'll, Quite frankly, I'll buy 20 books for the organization and send them out to everybody. And it's got to be organic. It's got to happen. It can't be forced. But again, organizations, people become very behavior and habit-based. And you're trying to create a leader learning mentality and a mindset to never stop
0: evolving. A leader learner mentality that's vulnerable and willing willing to accept criticism? Yes. Would that include that? Absolutely. How do you solicit criticism from people that supposedly work, quote unquote, under you as opposed to with you?
1: Well, I think we what we do in our organization, and I say we're tiny but mighty because we're small today, yeah. we put up our pillars and we say, hey, how are we doing on engaging the community? We want to serve every consumer with a mouth. How's our marketing? How's our Instagram? How's our website? And then the vulnerability when we make a mistake, even myself, if I make a mistake – Hey, guys, I apologize. I missed that email. Can you get it back to me? I was busy today, but it's on me. When an organization sees you apologize and be vulnerable, just another human being, you're another teammate. And when you act that way and you say we're all just teammates, we don't point fingers. We just pick up the ball, pass the baton, and keep running. It's actually an incredibly valuable tool because everybody feels a part and they feel safe.
0: Where do you want to take this company? How big do you want it to be?
1: I believe that Yesley can be a, a very large company. I believe Yesley has the ability to be a billion dollar brand. I think that it's pure white space. There's nobody there in front of us. I think we have to just take our time, do great work, be steady in what we do. And we're in no rush. We're in a rush to do the right things every day and grow the brand in a very organic way.
0: So that's the premiumization of what you're doing, right? I mean, when you, you use the term premiumization in the book, you're trying to be the first, the best, correct?
1: First mover, first leader, first First
0: mover. But the other thing I I noticed also in, in creating this, this brand, this company is sustainability. Tell us a little bit more about your, your value of achieving sustainability for the products that you're producing and the company that you're producing.
1: Yeah, great question. I think the world has really pivoted, right? When you look at the world today and you're out hiking in the back country, or running the back country, I love to run, and I find a plastic bottle at the stream or I find, you know, garbage, you know, we all have to get better at that. And I think there's been years of downward pressure on plastic and PET, you to see it in Europe, really take a really strong position. Then you start to see it in places like Whole Foods where they're eliminated plastic. I gave a speech this summer at Columbia University. They're no longer selling plastic on campus. It's all sustainable products. So we wanna be part of that movement. We wanna do our part to make a difference. And we also want with our mindset of, hey, we wanna serve every consumer with a mouth. We wanna be able to get our product in channels of trade and say it's sustainable, it's good for the environment. So it's really important. I think the world's gonna to continue to change that way. I think the young folks are teaching us a lot through time. And I think we are also getting educated as older folks at getting better at it as well.
0: You know, my wife is really into this. And she, you know, I was initially I was like, I have to take plastic bottles to the gym because that's the only way I could. She said, no, we're not buying plastic anymore. And if you want to buy plastic, go somewhere else. Don't bring (laughs) it home. So, you know, I'm really conscious of that. And it's because of the environmental uh, impact that plastic has had not only on the trails that you're running but in the ocean you know the pacific exactly. ocean is, is, a, is a morass what is the material that you're using to bottle the uh the yesly product
1: yeah, Yesley is a product that is in a 16 ounce aluminum can fully aluminum and uh really excited about Yesley this way now it is new for the consumer to drink a can but consumers have been drinking cans for a long time they're doing it in energy drinks they do it in probiotic sodas and, uh, you know, we're really excited about that 16-ounce can, which gives them a full serving, and we feel really good about it.
0: Has the product hit the market yet?
1: Yes, the product is in the market in New York City. It's in California and L.A. and San Diego. We just opened up Detroit a few weeks ago. We'll be opening up Texas in September. Uh, we've opened up Ohio and Indiana. We will, uh, we're in about 40 markets today, and over the course of the next 24 to 36 months, we'll be a national brand.
0: Will you be selling it over the Internet?
1: We will, where we are available on Amazon as we speak, which is great news. And um, we're also sharing it on our website.
0: Well, that's exciting. Um, What's the business value of building an organization that prioritizes happiness for its people?
1: I think it's really happiness. It's positivity. You know, I think we all work a lot of hours. We put a lot of time into the workplace. I think it should be a place where you should also go home at the end of the week. And feel proud about your organization. You feel proud about your culture. And I think a culture is a living, breathing thing. Doesn't mean you do everything right. We make mistakes like everybody else. But we talk about it. I want people to come to work, work hard, be great competitors, but feel really good about their contribution to the business. And I think if you do that, you talk about what you stink at, you make adjustments, you create a place that people want to be.
0: That's more important than anything in the long run is you you know, you can pay people a lot of money. You can pay people a lot of money, but if they're not happy, they're going to leave and they're going to go somewhere else where they can be, right?
1: Yeah, it's really always about retaining people and, you know, making sure that people are super excited about where they are and you're building talent, you're building teams. And, you know, in today's environment, people have a lot of opportunities, a lot of choices.
0: Last question for you today is if you were advising somebody in terms of, how to build their summit mindset? Where would you start? How would you you start?
1: Who are you? Who are you? And what are you in pursuit of life? I think you'll read, as you read on the summit mindset, there's a chapter on happiness. Often in our society, we think of happiness of the big house, a lot of money, but that's really not happiness because when you get to that goal of your dream, most people are still not happy. Happiness is an inside out job. Happiness to me is talking to you today, Wayne, having this conversation, having a dialogue. What sets your soul on fire? Start there and know that every day dream awake and have an action plan to do something with your life that's meaningful. I always start a summit mindset is who are you? And that thing, I think, as we get to our point in our lives, we see a lot of friends and family members through time. Happiness escapes them. But why? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to go after? And it can be very simple. It doesn't have to be big and grandiose. But I'd start the summit mindset of who are you.
0: There was a band back in the 1990s, 2000s called Switchfoot. And uh, they, had a, they had a song called Happy is a Yuppie Word. Um, <laughs> how do you respond to that?
1: I think happy is, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a yuppie word. I would call happiness is very, very understated and misused because life isn't always happy. Life is, you know, is always changing. And that's why I talk about pillars and your North Star and what you're pursuing, because I think happiness is often misused.
0: Well, the imagery that you've created in this book that's coming out, uh, tell us how to get a hold of the book and when we should look for it and where we should look for it.
1: Absolutely. So it's available on being released on September 12th. It can pre-order on Amazon today. Uh, you can get it from our website, summitmindsetthebook.com and excited for everyone to read it and uh, feel free to reach out for me. You can also DM me if you want to at Scott Miller dash versus U. I got a little Instagram and not a big social digital guy, but you can find me there and I wish everybody uh, one really important point Wayne is that they stay in pursuit of life because that's really important. And we all have intersections and we understand those and have a summit mindset, but always be in pursuit because I think it makes
0: us better humans. Scott Miller has been our special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Thank you for being a guest today. This has been, been great.
1: It's been an honor. Thanks. Great meeting you, Wayne.
0: Great meeting you. And by the way, get your The Summit Mindset. It'll be available on September 12th. And uh, it's a great book. And it has a lot of great imagery in it. So uh, it's the the idea of standing at the top of the mountain and staying and living your life at the top of the mountain, having a North Star striving for happiness we can't always be happy all the time but scott you've you've made that point very clear to me in in the book and it's great it's a it's a well-written book i highly recommend it to our our listeners and to everybody out there who catches this uh, video cast today thank you so much wayne thanks for listening to blueprint for wealth join us next time for another special topic and special guest and stay tuned for an educational moment right after this thanks have a great day Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and you're listening to Blueprint for Wealth. And I'm bringing you an educational moment on today's topic. What is a letter of intent and what does it consist of? This is an excerpt from my new book, Your Multi-Million Dollar Exit, The Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner, a Blueprint for Wealth Guide, available on Amazon today. It is an Amazon bestseller, so we hope you buy it. And leave us a five-star review if you get around to it. Today's discussion is going to focus on letters of intent, the non-binding provisions and the binding provisions you usually find in them. A letter of intent is basically a letter that can consist of binding provisions from a buyer of a business to a seller of a business. It's indicating their intent to pay a certain price for your business And outlining the terms and conditions of the transaction in which they're going to buy your business. Non binding provisions in a letter of intent typically consist of a variety of different provisions. One, it'll talk about the structure of the deal. Is it an asset purchase or a stock purchase? Is it going to be a stock purchase treated like an asset purchase for tax purposes? What kinds of due diligence need to be conducted? in the uh, period after the letter of intent is signed so that the purchaser can get comfortable with the seller's business. And of course, it outlines the terms that might be contained in the purchase agreement, albeit all non-binding until due diligence is completed. Importantly, the non-binding provisions include the purchase price and the terms and conditions under which the purchase price will or should be paid if a definitive purchase agreement is entered into by the parties. The purchase agreement, of course, in addition to having the price and the structure spelled out in detail, contains representations and warranties, covenants, various agreements and conditions, indemnities and set-offs, and even escrows that are normally associated with transactions between a willing buyer and a willing seller. The binding provisions are few, Number one, there may be an exclusivity period. If the buyer expects to spend a lot of time and effort and expense in conducting due diligence on your business, it's going to want to bind you to a provision that says you cannot enter into any discussions or other agreements with any other prospective buyers for a specified period of time after the LOI is signed. This is known as an exclusivity provision, and often it may be 90 days or more. You're going to want to limit that period in case you want to limit the time period from the beginning of due diligence until a purchase agreement is signed. This allows the buyer to sue you for damages if you breach the agreement. In other words, you go out and don't adhere to the exclusivity provisions in the letter of intent. In addition, a letter of intent will contain confidentiality and non-solicitation provisions. If you didn't already enter into a non-disclosure agreement with your buyer or have good, strong non-solicitation provisions in your NDA with the prospective buyer, try to get them in the letter of intent as part of the LOI's binding provisions. This will prevent either the seller, or the buyer from disclosing the existence or the contents of the LOI or the fact that they've even entered into discussions. It also prevents the buyer from snooping around your business and taking your customers or employees, if you have a good binding non-solicitation provision, the buyer cannot go out and solicit or hire or otherwise interfere with your employees or your customers during the period that it's covered. Once you sign the LOI, you're effectively engaged to your buyer, but you're not married. And like any engagement, it can be broken off at any time. Unless there's some kind of breakup fee initiated or negotiated as part of the LOI, either party can go away and the only thing that they will have incurred is the cost of hiring attorneys and people to help them conduct due diligence. You may sign a definitive agreement and you may not. If you don't, there's no obligation to go forward. If you do, then the parties are going to be bound to enter into a deal where there will be a closing at some point in time in the future. I encourage you to read my new book, your multi-million dollar exit for more information on LOI's and basically the nuts and bolts of buying and selling a business really from the seller's perspective. It's an Amazon bestseller and we hope that you enjoy the book.